show there, lollygaggers. Got another week on tap here. Little Def Leppard to get us started uh, here on Lollygagging Sports. As always, I'm Bo Reed along with Samantha Button and Matthew Irby. We're going to be chatting some various topics throughout baseball uh, over the course of the next hour or so, followed by, of course, Armchair Umpire. But first, as always, I'd like to check in with my fellow co-host, Samantha. How you doing? I'm good. I I feel like I'm doing better than both the Blue Jays and the Yankees this week. <laughs> so I just I haven't had to call anyone fat boy. I haven't been injected or you know being covered in sticky stuff. So you know I feel like I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. It's good to be Yale Central right now. <laughs> Irby, how about you? How are things up there in North Texas? Um, good. You know, we're getting some seasonal change. Um, it's been up and down the weather, but uh, a lot of moisture in the air lately, really hot, so really sticky. Um, so the weather's just been Domingo Hermelon. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, we're actually at that point of the calendar where I don't, I don't know why John Blake even bothers to let us know that the roof is open or closed at Globe Life Field. Uh, obviously, it's closed, um, and it's going to be closed until next spring. That's why you built it. That's why you built it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's kick into that into that baseball fun that we have every week. Smith, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so so let's talk about this, this Blue Jays Yankees business, because as a person without a dog in a fight in the fight, I mean, this is just delightful. I mean, baseball is the world's best theater, and, and this is why. And everybody is angry, and everybody is fussy. We've definitely reached the, like, you know, performative fussiness point in the season. You know, Bryce Harper kicked it off, um, you know, trying to fight the Rockies. That was excellent. Um, and, and now we have total meltdown. Blue Jays, Yankees, and I have to say, it's also very satisfying as an outside observer to see two teams that have a historical issue with whining about how unfair everything is to them, turning it on each other. So this is great. Um, <laughs> just excellent, excellent stuff. Um, the Yankees, I mean, I, I can't even imagine. How did you manage to get caught cheating the day after you get falsely accused of cheating? I mean, I know my Yankees people out there are very upset, and they're like, look, Domingo Herman's a bozo. we got to get this guy out of here. And, yes, you guys are right. I mean, like, this guy, like, how selfish do you have to be the day after this happens <laughs> to go out there and, like, roll in rosin? And this is the second time he's been popped for this. So, yeah, I, I don't blame the, the you know, <laughs> Yankees folks at all for being like, you know what, I'm done with this guy. And and the thing is, is like you had the righteous anger on your side before this, right? Because like this whole business of like, I, I know that this is the kind of stuff that breeds conspiracy theories and everything, but like, you know, we had Aaron Judge giving, you know, side eye apparently to the dugout and mm -hmm. okay, like, let's talk about this, right? Like, do, do we really think Aaron Judge was cheating? Like, I mean, I just... Occam's Razor, right? So Judge says he was mad because his dugout was chirping the ump when they were up 6 nothing. 
Mm-hmm. So does that sound like something the Yankees start out with you? Absolutely it does. I mm-hmm. mean, Aaron Judge, his entire role seems to be that he is always trying to keep, like, badly behaved teammates or badly behaved Yankee fans in line. Like, this is this guy's lot in life, right? He just wants everyone around him to behave, and it never happens. So that's a very plausible explanation. And also, I mean, could you really see? I mean, they thought at first, and it's interesting how this has evolved, too, because first he was peeking at the catcher, and then when everybody pointed out, uh, you really can't see the catcher from that angle, they were like, mm-hmm. no, no, now he was looking at the dugout, and the dugout is sending signals. Like, guys, not everybody sees the Astros. Also, like, yeah, yeah, he knew a slider was coming. You want to know how he knew that? Because the five pitches he saw right before that were also sliders. Like, do you think Aaron Judge needs to cheat to hit a home run? That was the sixth slider in a row. It was like 83 miles an hour and right down Broadway. So, feels unlikely. Seems very unlikely. Also, this would be another, I think, point where we need to um, emphasize the difference between cheating and gamesmanship. That even if he were, in fact, looking for a signal from the dugout because the pitcher was tipping his pitches, and it certainly sounds like he was, that's, that's not cheating like that that's yes yes it's kind of like picking the signs off second base right you're not supposed to do it but like cheating is a strong word for something like that so i I want to you know kind of emphasize that one might want to be a little bit careful with that too and then all of a sudden once again the situation evolved and now it's well he's looking at the third base coach the third base coach is giving us and it's like well, well who is it is he looking at the catcher is he looking at the dugout is he looking at the third base coach and then you know, the, the Blue Jays were apoplectic the, the night after that because a third base coach was not in the coaching box. You know, just like every third base coach ever since the dawn of time was not standing in the box. And then we just got the fear of the absurd, you know, where Schneider was screaming, shut up, fat boy, at someone in the Yankees dugout. <laughs> I'm told it was Rizzo, which is hilarious. But anyway, the whole thing is funny. Like, I mean, what do we think of this? Like, is this cheating? Is it gamesmanship? Is it none of the above? Is it just absolutely ridiculous? Where are we at? You, you know, uh, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I feel like it's my obligation to uh, mention once again that the Astros cheating scandal is really what brought this into the forefront. Um, yeah. You know, but you know, to your point, no, it's not cheating. Uh, cheating is putting a video camera in center field and banging on trash cans. That's cheating. Well, and having a whole video relay system, which has pervaded right. your entire organization. Like, it's a little bit different than picking off somebody's sign. Strategically <laughs> strategically placing a member of the front office next to the opposing dugout with a camera, that's cheating. Um, picking up the signs, that's baseball. You know, mm-hmm. picking, picking up that a pitcher is tipping their pitches, which... You know, to his credit, he said he was tipping his pitches. He actually said that. So, picking up that he's tipping his pitches and getting that information from the dugout because they've got a better angle of the tip, that's baseball. Okay? It's not cheating. Uh, Now, am I surprised that there's this massive overreaction? Of course not. (laughs) Because, like you said, it's the two whiningest teams in the sport. So of course there's going to be an overreaction. This I did get a kick out of, out of out of someone calling the other one fat boy. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, yeah. But but also you know the coach's box. Are you are you shitting me with this? I don't think I've ever seen a coach in the coach's box. I don't even know why they have those those lines. So the idea that all of a sudden we're going to pay attention to that is really small. 
and petty and just no. Okay, come on. <laughs> That's where I'm at with this. I, yeah, I just, it's amazing to me. Like, no wonder Rojas was like making the like, yeah, come talk to me out here gesture. Like, are you kidding me? The coach's box. Like, I, I just, like you said, like, I, I've never seen anyone say it. Ever. <laughs> no. Like, I was, it's so funny. I, it's just, it takes me back, and I know Sarango's fans, you, you guys will appreciate this too, because I know you've also experienced this, but it takes me back to the, the 2016 playoffs when every time there was a strike called on them that they did not like, the Blue Jays were like, they're doing stuff to us. Now, mm-hmm. who the us, who the they was was unclear in this. I mean, was it the then Indians doing it? Was it the umpires? Was it Major League Baseball? Unclear. But, like, you know, somebody was doing stuff to me. And then, of course, you know, you have the Yankees with the midges. Somebody was doing stuff to me. Like, I'm mm-hmm. a victim. Like, the two of them. Oh, my gosh. So it's, it's kind of funny to see them, like, flip on each other. But somehow, <laughs> even though they actually did get caught doing something you're not supposed to do, which is putting sticky stuff all over the ball, like, the Blue Jays still look the, like the bigger bozos in this situation. <laughs> The whole thing is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to take the easy bait and call Irby a bozo. That's that's a transition. That's funny, but Irby's not a bozo. Irby, where are you at on this? I, I I'll wear it. That's fine. That's I'll wear it. You know, it's the Blue Jays and the Pirates have the biggest bozo ever. But I'll get to him in just a second. Um, yeah, this is great. This is this is when you don't have a when you don't have a horse in the race here. I, I absolutely love this. I, I said it to you guys. Um, earlier in the week, like like this, this feels like once we get to one of these later series between these two, there's going to be fisticuffs, and it's not going to be the, you know, we get these. I, it, unfortunately, nowadays we live in a world where everyone's like, "Oh, bench is clearing ball." No, it's not. The bench is cleared, and they're pointing and yelling at each other. This ain't a ball. Yeah, the ball's coming with these two. Like like you can feel that this is coming, um, and whether it's you know third base lines, I which I love that he's not he's not the box. Does anybody know, like, like I, I would almost call a coach out for being in the box. Like, they're all out of the box. That's the whole point. Like, I, I, you know, nothing but nothing but respect to the uh, individuals out there who are making these boxes, knowing fully well that nobody's using this, nobody even knows this thing exists, kind of like the on-deck circle. Like, nobody's actually doing this. It's just part of the tradition. We're going to do it. So you put it there, but love that. Um, fat boy comments. All these things are great. Um you know, but Samantha, you brought it up like like this is not the first time we've seen this with these Blue Jays wanting to play the victim here. Um, fortunately, after that twenty six, you know, well the twenty sixteen was really a response to you know Rudin and Odor taking care of business uh, <laughs> since we just had our seven year anniversary of that. Um, one of our favorite fights. We need another one of those. I'm totally down with the Blue Jays um, being a part of that. I, I I you know I don't think it'll happen, but somehow Baby Vlad and Aaron Judge exchanging blows just has primetime TV written all over it. You know, uh, Irby, you actually just kind of gave me an idea. Um, maybe we'll do this next week. Uh, do we need, like, some sort of a scale for the benches clearing incidents? I'm not going to call it. They're, they're not all brawls. You're right, Irby. They're, they're incidents. How about we have a scale? Kind of like, like, like the, you know, the 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 uh, scale we have for, like, tornadoes and hurricanes. We have a Cat 1 to, to a Cat 5. Cat 5 being a full-on um, Nolan Ryan, Robert Ventura brawl. Okay? Pedro Martinez and, and Don Zimmer brawl. That's your Cat 5 uh, 
if there's nothing, if if all is just a little point, it's a cat. Well, what do you guys? What do you? What do you think about that, Samantha? Should we have something like that? Yeah, I, well, I think as the brawls occur, yeah, we could we could figure out how to rate them. I mean, certainly like Pedro Martinez, Don Zimmer, Yankees, Red Sox. That's that one's definitely that's the top five, right? And then then we also have the ones that truly are a brawl, but are like mostly funny and have a lot of like theater to them, like what we saw last year between the the Mariners and the Angels, where you know with the sunflower <laughs> seeds and the common you know personal hero, Rysel Iglesias. Yeah, um, just yeah. absolutely wonderful piece of theater there. Um, but yeah, you know we can we can work through this where it starts with like two people yelling at each other and everyone else wandering around and being like, "How's your wife? You want to go fishing this off season? Yeah, dude, text me. Yeah, okay, cool. All right, we'll see you later. You know, while two guys are like, "Your mom, your mom, your mom," in each other's face until somebody drags them away. Like that's like the bottom tier, mm. and then there's the middle tier where there's like definite fisticuffs it goes on forever and then there's the top tier where it's just mayhem and like an old man gets slipped on his head um, but right. we, we want to scale that and also for the record I, before we move on i would just like to point out that the thing that i need to see here is when alec manoa goes and like hunts garrett cole because you know that's coming oh yeah like garrett cole yes. is going to be yes. the one who is running his mouth while hiding behind like 17 other people. And Manoa is just going to go like, he's going to ignore everything else that's going on around him and go after Derek Cole. And that is going to be the funniest thing in the entire world. I can't wait to see that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Do we also need now that, now that Rizzo is apparently <clears throat> fat boy, like Alejandro Kirk takes him on, right? Bowling ball versus oh, yeah. fat boy. You're like, right. That, that just sounds like an actual fight. Bowling ball, fat boy. <laughs> yeah. That is, that's the natural match. Okay, now I need that too. That's perfect. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Okay, Samantha, what's next? Who's, what's next? All right, so let's stay. Let's stay in the AL East and, and talk about something else. You know, more good news. Last week I was all bad news. This week, guess what, guys? I'm all good news. All good news. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna talk about something a little bit more baseball-y and a little bit less about people lying and, and crying. Um, let's talk about Yoshida and the Boston Red Sox, who have been pretty good of late like are they like they're not good good but are they like frisky good might be which is kind of cool you know i mean they're in the last place but they're 23 and 20 so they're you know this hilarious situation that we have which i have some feelings about which i will not get into here about the bottom of the ale and the top of the al central but uh a big part of that you know and they're they're nine games out of first place sure but they're only one and a half back in the wild card they're one and a half back of the yankees and they've been playing good baseball and a lot of that is about yoshida who a lot of people were really skeptical about this signing coming into the season because you know his it wasn't wonderful his, his age is a little you know he's 29 years old that's pretty old for a player being posted from japan and he's like He's listed at 5'8 and 176, which probably makes him like 5'6 and a half and like 174. Um, so, but, and it didn't look like a great deal, you know, five years, $90 million, the way he was performing at first. And now it looks like probably the best or one of the best free agent signings of this offseason. So, right now he's hitting 301, and this is as of. Wednesday, uh, six home runs, 27 RBIs, triple slash, 381, 507, 888. So that's quite a change uh, from where he was at through the first 13 games of the season when he was at 167, 310, 
<laughs> brutal. Um, and Cincinnati's had a 16-game hit streak, leading the league um, in batting average and OPS during that time amongst eligible hitters. And so I guess the, the really interesting question here, other than just like, yay, Yoshida is good, that's awesome. Um, why, though? Why is this happening? And the guy is, you know, he's got excellent plate discipline. Um, he always has, but he couldn't keep the ball off the ground. Um, he was like 2022 the MVPS. Everything was on the ground. His average launch angle prior to April 19th, which is kind of the date we're going to use as the cutoff here, uh, because this is where things turned around for him, was negative 5.1 degrees. That is the second lowest in the entire league to only Gene Segura. So he's been at 5.9 since then, which is still pretty low because the MLB average is like 12.1, I think. But he's getting the ball out of the infield now. His x luck has tripled to 730 after his first two weeks. And he's just absolutely killing it on projectables. You know, XBA, x luck WOBA, hard hit rate, barrels are getting there coming up in – you know, they were pretty candid, you know, both, both he and, and Alex Cora were pretty candid about what he did. And they said he changed his batting stance. He opened it up a little bit. And now he's seeing the ball better. He's making better contract, both in terms of frequency and hard hit rate. And what he said he did was he just kind of tipped his right foot back a little bit, which opened it up a little bit and said it was really, really a, a big difference maker for him. He hasn't changed anything swing-wise. Um, and according to Cora, you know, assistant hitting coach Luis Ortiz, pretty instrumental in that. And... I think where you're really seeing the difference is, you know, he was hitting four seamers pretty well prior to that. But now, now we're seeing the numbers come up against breaking and off-speed stuff, which before that, you know, it was pretty easy to, to kind of make him ineffective. You just throw him something off-speed, and he was kind of done for for the at-bat. But it's really, really cool. I'm really rooting for this guy. So happy to see him coming around. And I think it's super cool, and it's a great testament to sort of how a small adjustment, mechanically speaking, can make all the difference. Uh, baseball, you know, it's it's one of my favorite things about it is it's a game of inches, right? Mm-hmm. Right, game of inches, and then you know, ground ball with eyes, that that type of stuff. But it also it, it also like in terms of like minimalization, like like that tiny little nothing of an adjustment, Irby. You know, opening up just a little bit, staying on your back foot a little bit longer, adjusting the timing of your leg kick, like just the slightest little change can make the, all the difference in the world. And you, you think about it. What are you doing? You're hitting a round ball with a round bat square. So even though this is the slightest little, even if, even if it's not necessarily him seeing the ball better, it's changed the angle of his bat to the ball. And that seems to be working. Well, and, but the whole thing is he didn't change that. He didn't change the swing at all. That's what I'm saying. Like, he did not change where his bat is he at. Changed he changed his stance. up his stance, which right. allowed him to get better look at the ball and also to get better you know i i guess to, to barrel the ball better yeah it's still going to change the angle that they just, just it'll slightly. change the launch angle yeah it's yeah, going to change things change later that's, that, that's all i'm saying Irby, how about you what are your thoughts here i well the first thing just to, to clarify when samantha was talking about the 176 that's a uh, that's a cody bellinger 176 on the weight Yes. Uh, not a, yes. Not a, not a, not a, <laughs> 176 in Cody Bellinger pounds. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No. This has been. I. It's a great assessment. What you're saying is, is this was one that when we saw the steal coming through, especially where Boston was at, it seemed a bit weird. Um, it felt like one of those moves that it's like, okay, is this? You know, are you doing this for the next four years because of his age? Um, it was a little confusing, but 
hey, we're seeing it. I mean, we got to see this a little bit in the WBC, and then now this is great getting him here. And, yeah, I, I it's a great testament, and, and I love how you guys, when we're going with this conversation of not bat placement, not approach, but stance, because that is the change. You know, we, we talk all the time about, hitters, you know, being a little bit, and, and, and this maybe is a little bit less of major leaguers, a conversation you do more with youth or, you know, for, for, for listeners, you know, your kids or your kids' teams and things like that. It's it's not always the st- it's not always your swing. You know, we always, you know, you got to change your swing. You got to adjust your swing. You got to adjust your swing. But it's not just that. It is where you stand in the box. It's the stance you take. It's the approach you take. It's the whole ordeal. Um, pitching is easier, you know, from the wind-up or from the stretch, you know, especially in the wind-up, there's all, all these mechanics and all these motions and everything that gets you into that rhythm for the lease. And the release is what we talk about, and that's, the, that's where we get these, these numbers and these stat casts and, and all those numbers that we talk about, but you don't talk about the wind-up and the repetition and the over and over again. Same thing with the batting, same thing with the batting, same thing with the hitter. You know, it, it does matter where you set up. Okay, I'm not getting good wood here, you know, for major leagues. Obviously, when you play here, it's, it's good metal on it. Not getting a good dig, but you're not getting good wood on the bat. Well, it's not necessarily the swing. The swing is there, so what is the placement? What is the repetition? What is it that we need to change? And that comes down to a player willing, to, a coachable player willing to make changes, and that comes down to good coaching. And so that's this is a great thing of where... It's a lot harder for, for stat heads like us to, to quantify this at times because there isn't any data on, on, on stance and everything, but it's that's where you take the numbers out. And I'm a numbers guy. Samantha, I know you are, you're a, we are numbers people. But baseball is still a human sport. It's done by humans. And so you take away the numbers and you look at the person. And a coachable player, a player willing to learn, a player willing to adjust, that's how you're successful. And this is at the highest level. This is not just, this is through, you know, travel ball, T-ball, coach pitch, travel ball, high school, whatever you want, college, all through these levels. You're coachable. You're willing to make adjustments. That's what he's done, and the numbers speak for themselves. Samantha, anything you want to add there before we get to your, your last topic? Uh, no, no, I just want to say it. I think that's a great point, Irby, that you're making when you talk about this is a game of numbers, and yes, like you and I, yeah, we're definitely numbers people, but the difference is is recognizing how do you use those numbers and make them work for a human, not just how do they work on a piece of paper, and, and this is something I think we've always emphasized when talking about you know taking a more analytical approach, and the Red Sox have done just that, so I, I think that's an excellent point. All right. What else do you have for us? All right, last thing, just a, a bit of fun here. Um, I kind of wanted to talk to you guys and, and kind of get everybody at home thinking about this too. Um, you know, baseball is a sport that has always kind of inspired collecting in its fans. And a lot of that started with baseball cards. And when you think about that, that it's sort of natural to kind of go out there and it, it provides these opportunities for people to collect uh, alongside the sport without having to do it at great expense, you know, typically when I was, I had a couple of art history degrees, um, and a lot of what I, the work that I did for that focused on collecting, um, and that is a, that's some rare air, um, <laughs> art collection, and one of the things that's cool about baseball is you can kind of collect alongside the sport, and anybody can do it, 
uh, because baseball cards are relatively inexpensive. And then, of course, we also have the possibility of getting a ball at a game and taking that home and adding it to your collection. And then just various sort of other weird things, whether it's things that were given away at a game or something you happen to get a hold of that was actually part of the game or picking up an autograph or some weird piece of memorabilia that you were able to purchase or that was given to you as a gift or what have you. It's like... I think it's really neat how the sport kind of encourages this and how everybody kind of creates sort of this parallel way to be a fan that in addition to just watching the games, that you can kind of create this little baseball world for yourself with these objects that are symbolic of this thing that we all love so much. So I wanted to ask you guys, and I'll call you mine as well, about you know sort of what piece of memorabilia you own that is like the most dear to you. So, I mean, we've all been at this for a long time, and, and we're definitely all into this. So, you know, we've, we've got some weird shit. Um, I have, like, six Kevin Seitzer cards because I, that are autographed because as a child, I went through a really weird phase where I was obsessed with Kevin Seitzer. But, um, so I've got some weird stuff. Um, but my favorite thing that I have, um, when I was in high school, I, actually, I was in middle school on Saturday, I decided to write letters to a whole bunch of current major leaguers and ask them about their experience in the minors. Unclear what I thought I was going to do with this. You know, I was like 12, so I'm pretty sure I thought I was going to write a book and become like a 12-year-old author. Um, but I must have thought I was the first person to ask them this. But anyway, you know, I did. I wrote like 100 of them uh, to a whole bunch of current major leaguers. I wrote these by hand, by the way, and mailed them in the snail mail. Uh, that's what you did back then. Put a stamp on it. You know, my mother was not happy about the number of stamps I was requesting, but sent out all these letters to all these guys. And I got a fair number of, like, autograph cards back or, you know, odds and ends of, like, photos and what have you. But only one person actually wrote me a letter. And that person was Paul Mahler. And I will always oh, love wow. Paul Mulder for this. He just wrote me this really, really thoughtful four-page letter. It was on hotel stationery. So you could tell he was answering his fan mail while he was on the road at night after games. And, and just wrote me this really nice letter where he went through and like very specifically answered all of the questions that I had asked and wished me luck with the project and everything. That's super cool. And it's just handwritten. Um, you know, he signed it at the bottom and... Just absolutely the coolest thing I've ever gotten in the mail and, and probably my most prized piece of baseball memorabilia. So, but I'm curious what, what you guys have got like that or, or what weird thing you've managed to acquire that is baseball related <laughs> that is sort of the, that you're most fond of. Well, okay. You guys know me. I am the king of, of, of the obscure shit. Um, I'm a big fan of Major League Three Back to the Miners. That's very well publicized on this show not everyone is so i typically don't go for the stuff that everyone else wants you know i don't i don't need the michael jordan card for example uh or in baseball parlance you know i don't need babe ruth no i'm good uh no i go after things like uh i've, I've got one that's that is it's a signed baseball uh it's it's signed by the entire roster of a last place rangers team i got one of those that's not my favorite though my favorite uh would have to be my Pete O'Brien and Obie McDowell signed baseball. Uh, a little backstory on this. Pete O'Brien was my favorite player when I was a kid, uh, Samantha. There's no reason for it. He was a very uh, average player. Uh, played for the Rangers for a while. Played for the Mariners for a while. Very average player. Nothing to write home about. Uh, but he was my favorite player. And then one day, uh, I'm up at, at the Rangers game. This is after college. And... 
There he is. He's signing autographs with Odubi McDowell. So I went, I bought a baseball, went over, autographed it, made him feel ancient when I told him he was my favorite player as a kid. And here I am sitting there as a college graduate. Um, but it's still to this day. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it is it is always prominent wherever I go because it was my favorite player growing up. My favorite player finally got his autograph on a baseball, and I actually watched him sign it, so I know it's real. See, but I love this, though, and this is like the perfect example of why this is such a neat thing to collect and, and sort of the way that it works for everybody. Because, you know, like you were saying, like, ah, I don't need a Babe Ruth card. I'm not looking for the most valuable card. And the, the most valuable thing to you in your collection, and this is, I suppose, true of my item, too, is something that probably wouldn't mean much to most people. But it means yeah. everything to you. And I think that is a hallmark of the best baseball memorabilia. Not like, what did you go buy at the Hall of Fame gift shop that was expensive? Or what rare card did you get that everybody says is valuable because there's only a few of them? It's like, no, what do you have that personally speaks to you and like is a good reminder? Like you said, you're looking at it. And every time you look at that thing, you think about how much you love baseball because it means so much to you. And that is like absolutely like, I think that makes for the best sort of baseball memorabilia stories. <laughs> I also, what about you, Irby? <laughs> go ahead, Herbs. All right, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, that's a, that was fun listening to. Um, so I wasn't, we were doing this, I wasn't sure of the direction that we're going with this. I had multiple things, but now I know the direction I definitely want to go what we're doing. Because I have some cool stuff, like you said, Bo. I think there's a, a die cast of the old ballpark. Um, the you know, the newer stuff, the Adrian Beltre, the night he got thrown out for moving the on-deck circle that we talked about earlier, and that was always a fun one. Um, I'm, I'm loving now getting autographs uh, with my son. Uh, my youngest one is really enjoying it, um, and we have the double-A up the road, so it's a whole lot easier to get them. Um, I'm still working on, Samantha, I know you're a fan of this one, too. I'm working on a baseball, hopefully at some point, with Jack Leiter and Kamar Rocker both on there. That'll yeah. be a nice one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for obscure, that that really, yeah, that nobody would give a crap about, but I would love. So my dad had a bunch of trading cards when he was a kid um, and kept a bunch of them. And when I was old enough to appreciate trading cards, he took them in and we, using what he sold, we were able to buy a bunch of stuff. So I actually have um, sitting, and it, it's still sitting in my closet today, it's two different sets. One of them is it's 1980. It's it's the tops right, 1980 to 1989. The entire sets, mint condition, nothing's ever been opened. They're all sitting in there. But as great as that is, and I have no idea what I'd ever do with that. Maybe I don't know. I, that, that's 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 not to be discovered yet. But it's the other one that he bought. So he bought all that for me just as a, as an investment to hang on to and hold on to. But it's what came with it, and it was the 1990 set. And the 1990 set, he said, this is the one that you can open and you can do whatever you want with. We'll keep all these, but you can do this. So what I did as a child, um, eight, seven, eight years old, I divided the cards up to all the teams. And I had all the major league teams and all the cards in there. And in my parents' living room, I would place the players all throughout where their positions were. And then actually play a game and simulate games and hit a ball. I had a bat and a ball and I'd be hitting them and I would be doing double plays, hitting home runs, sliding into bases and all that stuff. And those cards I still have today as ripped up, smudged out, messed up as they all are. And it was kind of fun to look at them recently because 
I really got an idea. I was like, wow, apparently I either didn't like this player or he got a lot of plays because this card is in three pieces, basically. <laughs> That's where you need the sticky stuff. You need it for the uh, the tacky stuff for the cards. Keeps yes, <laughs> yes. That was good. <laughs> holds them all together. <laughs> oh, man, that is awesome. I love that you took the cards and played a game with them after arranging them where they belonged on a baseball field. That is outstanding. I mean, that's just another great example of the ways that people kind of find ways to use this stuff to make it mean something to them and to kind of involve themselves in the game. And you, like, literally did it. Like, you turn it into a literal game. That is awesome. I love that. And, and knowing myself, I don't know where it is today, but I'm almost positive there are sheets of loose leaf paper that were all over my parents' house with scorebooks yes. and runs and results and all that stuff. And um, now as a parent, the funny thing now is now as a parent, like I, I try to think about like, what would, I, what would you do if you saw your kid doing that? Like, I, I want I'd be okay with it, but I feel like at the same time I'd be looking at it going, I don't know what's wrong with him. What do you mean? Well, he's got such and such in center field, and he's obviously a right fielder. I don't know why our son has him in center field. Like, that is a terrible placement here. <laughs> I can just picture you leaning over and being like, I could see myself doing this, too, being like, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you yeah. want to do that? Like, are you sure that's where you want to put him? Like, you know he's eligible at shortstop. You know that, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right, Irby, you're up. What do you have for us tonight? Uh, well, I mean, now that we've gone down memory lane, and um, this was that was fun. That was that was a really good segment. Thank you. I, I kind of um, will not comment on the fact if I get all the cards out later today. Maybe have a simulated game once this is all over with. Maybe, maybe not. That's that's not important. Um, but this goes back to uh, you know we talked about Yoshida a little while ago, and it was players um, finding themselves getting back to you know, I, I, I making adjustments and improving their game. And the one I wanted to touch on, um, so we, we, we haven't talked about those nationals pretty much at all. <laughs> um, for good or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but there is some really good things going on in, in Washington, and especially from last year to this year. And that one would be uh, one Josiah Gray. Uh, it's still... A, a definitely young player. Josiah is only 25 years old, and, and this is his third season in the majors, and I'm not a candidate for anything along the lines of um, bust or anything like that. But Josiah last year had his best ERA, and that was a 502 in 28 starts. It was his most starts. It was his best, but it, best ERA. He was 7-10 and 10 of the record. You know, with Washington last year, 7-10 is pretty decent. Um, but he was giving up a lot of home runs, and and, and lots of things not going well. But one thing Josiah did, Josiah has found that, you know, and obviously it's not a foul, but things are clicking differently. And the most interesting about Josiah Gray, who, yes, you know, doesn't have a great record this season, but we look way beyond that, a 2.73 ERA. He's going deeper into games. The walk rate is still high. It's one thing he's got to deal with, but the home runs are down. The hits are down. His whip is exactly in line where he's been his entire career. A, a, a one thirty—it's great. His up, his high is one thirty-six. His low is one thirty-four. This season's one thirty-five. So he's exactly right on where he's been his entire career. The difference this year with Mister Gray, with the difference of what we're seeing, is is that he is getting out of innings. 
It was an issue he had had before. A lot of the home runs, especially last year, were crooked number home runs. He wasn't giving up solo shots. This year, totally different. Josiah Gray is figuring out how to get out of innings when there are runners on base. And I, 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 I don't want to simplify it or anything, but that's really what it comes down to is, is yes, guys are going to get on. That, that happens to everybody. It, it's what you do. You know, what happens when, okay, you walk the leadoff guy and the next one sneaks through a single. Now you got first and second with nobody out. Okay, that's, that's usually a run score, but it's not a definite thing. And that's the difference between good pitching and bad pitching is can you work out of those innings? And though Gray is still a high walk number, and it's a number that's got to be fixed if he's going to continue to have a prominent career, he's figuring out how to get out of innings. He's pitching to better contact. He's pitching to weak contact. And he's getting himself out of innings. And that really is what it comes down to. And I, I, I don't want to simplify it that much, but he's made that turn. He's figured that out. And it's going to be a huge deal for this young man. You know, Samantha, it's, it's actually not talked about, I don't think, enough, the ability to get out of the inning and how much of a difference it makes. Because this sounds very similar to what we've seen with Martin Perez for a lot of his career up until the last couple of years, which was having trouble, getting in trouble and not being able to get out of it. And there's a lot of pitchers out there that have that same problem. They're, they'll, they'll be lights out for five innings, but that one big inning is going to, it's going to bite them in the ass because they didn't know how to get out of it. And if, if this is a trend with him, that's going to keep going. It completely changes his career trajectory. Yeah, though you and I see always seem to go to like the same place on stuff like this because this is exactly <laughs> where I was going to. Because the whole time he was talking, I was thinking, you know, we don't spend enough time talking about pitcher development and how hard it is to learn how to get out of an inning. I mean, in a way, it, it also kind of goes back to Irby. You talk about this a lot in football is you got to learn how to lose. And, and this is part of it, too, is like you got to learn that like, Yes, the pitcher has the advantage overall in baseball, but, like, you're going to put runners on. Like, guys are going to hit you. You have to learn not to have the meltdown inning, and it happens to the best run, and it happened to my, my poor dear Shane Bieber uh, just this week on Tuesday night at a horrible inning. Um, so, you know, there's another conversation to be had about having the bounce back start after you've had a bad inning like that, how do you come back after that in your next appearance. Um, but, yeah, I, the, the big takeaway from this, for me, specific to Gray, and, and also that I think the Nationals are a, probably a better team and further along in their development than we initially saw coming into the season. But, but yeah, I mean, it's it's huge. Like, it's not so much that you can't make a mistake because every pitcher does and somebody's going to get you. It's how do you adapt your approach within the framework of that inning to make sure that you limit the damage from that mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Irby, anything you want to add to that before you go to your next thing? Well, it's one, though. You and me have the one of the biggest headaches from me. We were talking about young pitchers, and that was Derek Holland. Um, it was one of the uh, biggest uh, drawbacks uh, of his uh, entire oh, career. Yeah. I mean, it, it, Holland, it was always it was almost painful to watch his runs per inning because it was 0 0 0 4 0 0 0. Like, like every single night, like it's all that. It's like 5 0 0 0 0 0. Like, cool, man. 0 0 0. Oh, this is great. 6. Like, freaking A, man. Like, like, he just couldn't get out of it. And it's, yeah, it is yeah. a big development, and it's why for all those people that go to those minor league games and you see those guys, you almost want your guys to deal with that there. You, you, you almost want them to deal with it that of like, okay, kid, yeah, that sucks. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah. So, Derek Collin would be a great example of someone who actually never learned that lesson. <laughs> nope. Blaming it on hockey, but 
Enough of that. Uh, so we <laughs> we talked earlier um, about the fun shenanigans and beautiful things that are happening in Toronto and New York, but let's dive a little deeper with the this, the Blue Jays team here. Um, the uh, roller coaster team that this Blue Jays team is. So they're they're in a battle. Um, you know, as we record, they're in the final game of this series against the Yankees, and it's a big deal because if they lose here and get swept, it will be the seventh straight series in which they have been involved in a sweep. They've won most of them, but they're losing these things too, and it's something that, like, I think it is weird. We don't see that in baseball. Um, this is a strange Blue Jays team. I think we all are in agreement that this is a good Blue Jays team, this is a Blue Jays team that can go deep into a postseason run. It's not a team that you want to face if healthy come the postseason. Um, and it's one that we've seen developing for quite some time. But it's a, <laughs> I, it's a Blue Jays team that, man, if they go into the postseason in the right mood, yeah, I don't want to face them. And they can just as likely Minnesota Twins it in the postseason and just, okay, we made it, now we're going to get swept. Yeah. So I, I this is a strange team and in, in a division where, you know, Smith, you hinted at this earlier, um, a division that we really are having a, all of us are having a difficult finding out who this, team, this division is as a whole. I mean, last place, three games above 500. Um, I don't know what makes a Toronto. I still believe in this team. You know, none of us saw this Tampa Bay thing running through, happening like this, the Baltimore, we, you know, yes, but Toronto, I, 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 I guess it's really, it's, I want to get you, y'all's feels here because this is like a temperature gauge where, you know, Bo, I'll speak in your terms on meat. Like, you know the meat is cooked, you know it's hot, but the temperature gauge is showing that it's not. Like, I don't know what to make of this Toronto thing. The eye test says this is a good team. The results I'm watching says, I don't know. You know, um... Samantha, I think I'm with Irby here. I don't quite know what to make out of this Toronto team either. Um, they're, they're streaky. They look great, then they don't. How about you? Yeah, you it, yeah, it's weird. You know, I think it sort of relates to there was a discussion on Effectively Wild not too long ago where they were doing a stat blast and they were talking about teams that had gone on a losing streak of seven or more and then still gone on to win their division. And it turned out to be kind of like less uncommon than you would think that teams just do this. And there was a Cardinals team in, I believe, 2006 that did it twice and then went on to win the World Series. So um, what it seems is that going on these really rough losing streaks, as long as you can counter it with winning streaks, actually doesn't really hurt you that badly in terms of, what kind of team you really are, who you're going to be when you show up in the postseason. But I think the thing that's a problem, and Irby, this is kind of what you were hinting at, I think is the timing. So it's okay, yeah, you can go on these, like, horrendous streaks, and as long as you're playing good, productive baseball the rest of the time, you will still be a playoff team. You can still perform well in the playoffs. But there's always the danger that you're going to hit that ugly skid at exactly the wrong time and I worry with a team like this because, you know, when we talk about these teams that have historically gone on these, like, real bad runs and gone on to win anyway, most of them were not actually in that tight of competition. And this division is a dogfight. So there's less room for error there. If you hit the skids at the wrong time, 
do it in September, mm-hmm. and God forbid, do it in October. That's where I really worry about these guys. It's like, okay, well, sure, they might show up in a playoff series and, and just, like, beat the crap out of somebody and sweep them. Or they might be on the other end of it, and we could be talking about the same opponent there. Mm-hmm. So that makes mm-hmm. me a little bit nervous for them. Hey, you think about it, the last two weeks, you really <laughs> – that's where being a street. It's almost like you're playing roulette, right? And like, okay, <laughs> are we gonna are we gonna be the good team for the last two weeks to get into the playoffs? We're we gonna be the bad team that plays their way out. Ooh. All right, Irby, what else you got for us? Well, okay. So last one, I just have a little fun, and and, and I won't spend a terrible amount of time on this, but I do want to get y'all's quick feedback on this. So, I you know rummaging through statistics, which is what I do in my leisure time, just trying to find some fun stuff. I found a fun little stat, um, and, and we won't run through everything major here, but um, they do track out there. It is being tracked. The average home run trot. <laughs> of course. Uh, so I <laughs> it is an amazing list of the quickest and the slowest, and uh, we will start off with the quickest. Um uh, I, you know, don't, you don't have to do any, but, but one name, you know, do you guys have anybody that you think right off the top of your head, like, oh, that, that person's definitely got to be on there? All right, so we need somebody who is both reasonably sweet of foot and also who's, like, all business. So who's not going to stand there and watch? Mm. Or the guys who are just super amped, who, like, sprints around the bases. Um... Gosh, who do I, who do I think would just put their head down and like plow around? It's got to be somebody who doesn't actually hit that many home runs. Um, Ooh, very good. Uh, so none of the top fifteen have more than three home runs this season. So obviously, Stephen so, Kwan. It's, it's the it's the Stephen third, eighteen point six seconds on his one home run. See, it's the it's the one Samantha that don't know what to, you know what to do because they don't hit them all the time. Yeah, yeah, you're looking for a combination, yeah, of, like, somebody who, like, doesn't understand the process, somebody who's naturally pretty quick, and also somebody who's, like, relatively business-like, who's not going to stand there and stare at it. Or you get the ones who, I I also wonder, too, a little bit about the guys who, like, sprint down at first because they're amped, and then they jog the rest of the way so that they can have their moment. But, like, okay, so I need, we need two other people, like, Stephen Kwan, somebody who's not hitting very many home runs, but... Um. Yeah, Luis Arise. Ooh, ooh, that's a that's a good one. Um, I does Luis even have a home run this season? He may not. That's, may not. that's <laughs> what's tripping me up here. Um, I I am not seeing him in my top one hundred. So I'm gonna. No. Yeah, he may not. <laughs> oh wait, no, no, there he is. He is ninety seventh at twenty one point nine seconds on his one home run. Oh, so, so he, he decided to appreciate the moment. Yes, he, he appreciated his his home run and, and trotted around as quickly as Jason Hayward. So there you go. Uh, that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, no, the uh, this this is a weird uh, list with our our top guy. Um, actually, forty three home runs in his career, only one this season, and that would be David Dahl at eighteen point two seconds. Okay, I'll buy that. I will buy that. So, that track. That makes yeah, sense to me. Um, Alex uh, Kirilov with his two home runs at 18.5 seconds. Um, everybody in the top 13 is under 20 seconds. You've got Stephen Kwan after that. 
Tyler O'Neill, Stuart Fairchild, John Berkey, uh, Japan's own Lars Newtbar, uh, yeah, I- Isaiah Kiner Falefa, Nico Horner, and uh, Seth Brown. Didn't didn't think Seth Brown would be hmm. would be in the top ten. But now let's flip it. And the boys would like to take their time. <laughs> oh, Give me Max Muncy. <laughs> Max Muncy. <laughs> um, no, Max Muncy, not not in our top. Max, Max, you know, Did business as usual. Madison Bumgarner got DFA'd, and so we can't have him slow down extra when he's facing that <laughs> Uh, that's possible. That's a Max Muncy comes in at 112 at 23.9 seconds. Wow! On his 14 home runs, so he's the uh, uh, same time as Pete Alonso. There you go. Um. Hmm. We do uh, have a couple of the big boys. I'm trying to think in, of who was actually really slow, like to the point that it annoys me. I, I I'm trying to think. Justin like, Turner, maybe. Say that again. Justin Turner. Justin Turner. There you go. No, no, um, no. Justin is is forty comes in forty fifth on his four home runs at twenty five point six seconds. Am I looking for like a big beefy fellow? We've got a couple of those. We've we've got a couple of older, uh, uh, beefier guys. Um, but uh, my favorite is going to be number two, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and it's what's awesome about this list. Is it Trey um, Turner? <laughs> Trey, <laughs> that'd be that awesome if Trey Turner was <laughs> anywhere. Great. So slow. <laughs> what about um? That's this guy, but that's when it goes out, and I'm walking. <laughs> what, about, what about Alex Bregman? The guy annoys me in every other way possible. So why not this? <laughs> there guy? you go. There you go. There you go, Alex Bregman. No, Alex doesn't. Um, Alex doesn't get in this list. Um, oddly enough, there are some of the other big ones like uh, Daniel Vogelbach is thirty-seven. Um, he can't the exact it matter. <laughs> well, but that's the exact same time as Jazz Chisholm, so figure that one out. <laughs> well, <laughs> those two. One is taking their time. And I was about to say, yeah. Uh, yeah, jazz, yeah. Uh, jazz is very theatrical uh, in, mm-hmm. in everything he does. That's why I love him so much. That's my one of my favorite um, players. <laughs> some other. Fun ones of, of really slow. Uh, 27.2 seconds for uh, Ronald Acuna Jr., Juan Soto, and just a tad quicker than that, the bowling ball. That's right. The bowling ball is quicker than Acuna Jr. Love see, that The bowling ball is all business, though. So I could, this is true. I could see him, like, hustling, you know, whatever hustling means for him. You know, the same is Trey Turner hustling, but um, I can see that. I can see that. I'm yeah. waiting for like Jeff McNeil or somebody like that because I was like, oh, wouldn't he be the one who would watch it? Like, even though he's capable of moving at great speeds, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, we do have uh, a speedster in there. Right before I get to those, uh, Josh Naylor, uh, at Cleveland Zone, twenty-seven point four seconds comes in at sixteen. Hmm. Yeah, um, he's, he's not even this- down to first, and he gets exhausted, and he has to like limp the rest of the way. That's why. That <laughs> well, happens. and. Oddly enough, he is not even the slowest uh, guardian. There is one slower, but he has only one home run. Is it um, a catcher? Uh, no, no, not a not a catcher. A couple catchers on here, but no. Um, it is one Oscar Gonzalez. Oh, Took yeah. 27 and a half seconds on his one home run. No um, but our, our top ten in there, uh, Alex Verdugo, uh, 27.6 seconds on his five. Rowdy Tellez. 
making this he's a big one. He's a big yeah. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Rhino uh, sorry, Tapia, uh, with his one home run, he took himself a good 27.8 seconds to round those bases. So he enjoyed his one home run. You don't know what the uh, is coming. Yeah. Salvi Perez up there seventh at 28 seconds. He's um, a senior citizen. He's allowed right. to... Yeah, not with the law. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brian De La Cruz um, okay. is the first of the of the fifth. Isaac um, Paredes, 28.2. Uh, Jesus Sanchez, 28.2. One, uh, Wilson Contreras, <laughs> 28.4 seconds to be our third slowest. Probably shouldn't be doing that right now, but okay. Yeah, uh. this is true. Um, I'm skipping number two because it's my favorite one. Number one, uh, Marcel Azuna. It took him twenty. It's taking him twenty nine point three seconds on his eight home runs. But the favorite here that makes that no sense whatsoever, except that he is a seasoned veteran player who does not have a lot of home runs in his career. And his one this season, it took him twenty eight point nine seconds to round the bases. Um, a player who is, my gosh, been playing since 2009. He has 93 home runs, so he enjoyed it. That is Elvis Andrews with the second slowest home run trot of the season. Average. Well, he's been around for a while. Uh... Elvis been around a while, but still. 28.9 seconds, Elvis? Really, bro? <laughs> <laughs> he may have been beaten down by his current circumstances. Well, and the fun thing too is 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 his one home run. So there's there's a whole other stat on here of uh, no doubters, mostly gone, and doubters, where you kind of you do you know home runs depending on the ballpark. His was a doubter, so it wasn't even a guaranteed home run. So he should have been running out of the box. <laughs> and, uh, see, now I want to look that up on like what it dawn because I want to know like how many parks was that a home run? Like, is this one of those where it's like, oh, you were watching that and you could have. Like fly out of the track. That's <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. It's back on. Um, if I'm looking correctly, it's on May 5th. He hit it off Hunter Green. Okay. So like we we need to we need to look up the video on that and see uh, Elvis if he was out of the box and then just decided, yeah, I'm gonna start walking. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. Well. <laughs> Smith, anything else you want to add here before we get into the Dodgers? Uh, no, but I'm going to see if I can find this for you guys. So uh, let's let's talk Dodgers. I will report back. <laughs> All right, so I wanted to talk about the Dodgers here this week because no one else is. I, I, this is this is interesting because this team has been talked about and talked about and talked about. They get off to a tiny little bit of a sluggish start. You know, at one point you had the Diamondbacks leading that division for a little while, and and now all of a sudden here the Dodgers sit where the Dodgers are always sitting this time of the year. They've got they've got a little bit of a cushion in in the National League West. They're back to put back to being themselves. They're very quietly Samantha just doing what they're supposed to do. And it's, it's just weird because it's the Dodgers and they're quietly doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, I think it's interesting because they're definitely a team that you kind of trust to be all business and kind of like no shenanigans for the most part. They just kind of do their job. And 
I think in some respects that the reason this seems weird to us was more because they were less hyped than anything to do with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a year ago we had a bunch of lunatics coming into the season being like, Dodgers team's historically good. They're going to win like 130 games. And you were like, whoa, calm down. Nobody's winning 130 games. And everybody's watching them like a lot because we were hearing all this like historically good team stuff. And that obviously didn't happen as it typically doesn't, which is why historically good still has meaning because it's like real hard to do, but it does kind of make you keep an eye on it more than usual. And this year the Dodgers were really like, yeah, they had a rough off season. It was pretty disappointing. They didn't do a whole lot. They kind of got hamstrung by the Trevor Bauer situation. And as a result, especially when combined with the fact that the Padres went out and spent a gazillion dollars to buy everything that was available, um, which is not really working out that great for them. Um, But we kind of didn't pay that much attention to the Dodgers. The Dodgers are just kind of quietly doing their Dodger thing, which shouldn't surprise anyone. And, And it makes me wonder if it's not really that they are operating differently it's that the hype wasn't there this time around mm-hmm. so we weren't paying attention and like yeah they've probably been kind of quiet about it all along it's just that it felt louder because there were too many other people making noise about it yeah no that, that, that's that, that's a very good point <laughs> because there wasn't there wasn't the build-up uh about this dodgers team that we've seen uh what about you Arby? where you at here with the dodgers Hey, yeah, I mean, not surprised at all. You know, I know we talked a couple weeks ago about Clayton Kershaw, and it was wonderful and, and what he's doing, but it's not just Clayton. It's all around. And, you know, Smith, you mentioned Max Muncy a little while ago, and, you know, we I, everybody's enjoying this. The current <laughs> seems like James Altman might get NL Rookie of the Month every single month, potentially. <laughs> he's playing. You know, it's this is this is what the Dodgers do. And, and if, you know, you pay attention, to organizations like this and yes they bring in all this talent they bring in all these wonderful things and then if you go look at the top prospects in baseball they've got a bunch of them too you know here they are getting a bunch of guys like this over and over again and they just keep reloading and it's we're seeing good smart business where they don't hold on to players that they can afford to let go and we get results like this and they are i i'm loving what they're doing and, and they're not just doing this by playing the A's every weekend or playing the Royals. And they, mm-hmm. they are beating up the teams that they potentially would be playing in the playoffs. And in the past two weeks, they've taken five or six from the Padres, who was supposed to be the one that was competing. And San Diego was in the lead not long ago, and now they're actually below the Giants as we stand at this exact <laughs> moment. Great job, Padres. Um, I... Love what the Dodgers are doing, and and it's wonderful. And Smith, you said it right there. This was not the year. Like everyone's like, well, this is the year the Padres take a step back. The you know, be the Padres. The Dodgers take a step back. It'll be the Padres' year. Watch out for the Diamondbacks. And and but like I said, here we are. Dodgers doing Dodgers things. I mean, did the Padres take a step back though, or are they just standing in place? I think they're just no. They're jumping backwards. (laughs) They're falling backwards. Tripping over their own feet and falling backwards. Yes, they are driving the motorcycle backwards. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well, speaking of doing backwards things, are you guys ready to talk about Wilson Contreras? Because this is weird. You know, the, the Cardinals go out and they sign Contreras. You know, they give him all this money, Samantha, to replace Yachty. And 
inexplicably, it seemed they they just they just put him at DH about a week and a half. What was it, about a week and a half ago? Two weeks ago, they just put him at DH. They stopped putting him at catcher. Well, that that was very weird and perplexing to all of us. Luckily, Mr. Bob Nightingale has got the actual reason, and it's it's pretty absurd. Uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. It's pretty absurd. Um, quoting Bob Nightingale here, uh, the starting pitchers told management they simply no longer wanted to pitch to him. That's a new one. I've, I've not personally heard this particular line before, but the starters, Samantha, apparently were blaming Wilson Contreras for their bad start. Well, since he was a DH... Yeah, they've, they've, they've won a few more games, but the ERA's gotten worse. It's gone from 540 to 547. So are we really going to sit here and blame Wilson Contreras, who is not the best when it comes to catching in the game? I, I, I will grant that. But are we really blaming Wilson Contreras for the Cardinals' bad start? I, I think we are alongside a lot of other people. He has caught an unfair amount of heat here. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you had some enormous shoes to fill. Um, it being the catcher who followed Yachty there. There's just no, there was no winning list. And the way around it was supposed to be, well, he's such a good hitter. But you won't even notice, right? Because now mm-hmm, suddenly mm-hmm. we're going to get offense out of the catcher position, which, you know, we haven't seen out of Yachty for quite a number of years because he was very old. But... That's not quite how this worked out. And, yeah, so what it turned out, I mean, this whole thing is bonkers, and and mostly it it speaks to, I think, some internal dysfunction within the Cardinals, and I have a lot of questions about Alan Normal as manager because this is kind of how you find out who your manager is and how he handles bad situations. And this guy, oh, boy. Um, (laughs) If you want to blame somebody for all of this, like, who has handled this the worst? I mean, I know the Cardinals fans want want Mo fired and all that, and and I can appreciate that, that perhaps his career has run its course. But, you know, Ollie Marmolin has been an absolute disaster. He's handled all of this just in the worst way possible. And look what happened with the Tyler O'Neill benching and all of that. You know, Mm -hmm. not a single player supported what he had to say about that. So, it's been rough. And, like, yeah, because, and the problem is, like, but this is what really happened, right? Like, the pitchers really were saying that essentially this guy can't call a good game. And we don't know how much of that is, well, you're all used to Yachty. Like, it's going to be downhill no matter who. Um, and, unfortunately, because Contreras is, is not particularly good at this, it, it just sort of was such a glaring example. And But as you pointed out, <laughs> they were still bad. Um, they've, of course, since moved Contreras back, so he was the catcher, then he was the DH, and now he's the catcher again. And, but it's it's a combination of things. So their pitching has been awful in, in ways that you absolutely cannot blame on the catcher, and also Wilson Contreras has not done a good job um, of calling games. <laughs> so, I mean, there's plenty of blame to go around. Throw it anywhere you want. I mean, have Figure out, you know, what the hell's wrong with Nolan Arenado. I don't know. There, there are a lot of people out there who, who deserve to take a hit for this. I mean, I put Marvel at the top of the list because he's the one who made the comment about the fans. And, and you know, mm-hmm. just like to point out that this is a team that lost six games in a row and 41,000 people showed up to the, the seventh game. So, like, F you. Do not blame the fans. Absolutely not. Also, the fans can't pitch for you, so that's really never viable. But... Yeah, I just sprinkled the blame around. Wilson Contreras, the pitching staff, the managers, the front office, everybody I, I think has some, some culpability here. <laughs> the starting pitchers told management they didn't want to throw to him, Ruby. That's that's I I'm not saying it hasn't happened before, it's the first time I've heard about it. 
I well, yeah, because it's it, this is the first time in Cardinals history that Yachty hadn't been catching, right? Like he's been there the entire franchise, right? Feels like it. Like Yachty's like, always yeah. always was there. Yeah, I. My sympathy is as bad as low as possible. Like no, tough. This is what you get. Like like no, you life beyond Yachty. Okay. Well, we don't like pitch to him because he's not Yachty. In period. Hard stop. Moving on. Next conversation. Um, I think this is, has to do with management. Absolutely. Um, this has to do with a very subpar pitching staff. I, I the, the blame can go around. There's lots of blame. But we, we're we sitting here at the big boys table. We're, we're sitting at the big table. Okay? And the blame is going to fall on the guy replacing a legend. That's what happens. You, you know, it, it's always tough to be the one that replaces the legend. And it's not a replacement. It's a retirement, obviously. But it doesn't matter. You're always going to be that guy. Yeah. You know, it, it's the, you know, the next basketball, whoever's the next basketball coach at Duke after Krzyzewski left. You know, it's things like that. I mean, my gosh, can you imagine being the next football coach of the Patriots? Yeah, you're screwed. <laughs> I, I can. You're Josh McDaniel. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, like it's things like that. It's like you don't. It, it doesn't matter, and it's not fair to the athletes, stuff like that. But you will get more blame than is deserved, and that's what's going to happen here. Is, is well, it can't be the pitching because the pitching it's, it's the same as last year. Well, it's not the same as last year. You know, it, it's yes, and so no. You paid for the hitting of Wilson Contreras, not the catching, and you're getting that hitting. Okay, it's not our fault that he's not catching. You knew that, and if you didn't know that, shame on you. You've got to find a better catcher. Tough. tough. I, 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 that's just because we don't want to pitch though. Cry me a freaking river. There's 29 other teams. Like, like, no, this isn't. You don't get to have a good catcher all the time. No, I, I, sorry, zero sympathy. Stop blaming Wilson. Ain't his fault. He knows what he is. He's doing the same thing over and over again. This is on. This is 100% on the Cardinals, and I. Whatever you want to do, front office, management, whatever it is, this, this is on coaching. <sighs> All right, Samantha, anything you want to add there? Yeah, you know, Bo, you kept saying this is the first time I've heard of this happening, yes. um, which I think is, like, really telling here because that's what this is, right? Because, like, this has happened before, right? This has definitely happened. There has been sure. a team where the pitchers were complaining about it, but but I think the point that you were making is sort of tells us everything we can know about how dysfunctional this situation is mm-hmm. because the, because we actually heard about it. Yeah. Because this probably happens actually pretty often, but you don't hear about it. It stays in the clubhouse because nobody wants that getting out. Nobody wants to be the one pointing fingers. Nobody wants their teammate having to defend themselves. So when these conversations go on, they go on behind closed doors. And as you have pointed out this time, however, we're all hearing about it. And Jack Flaherty's out there talking about it in a press conference. Like, I don't know, man. Like, instead of terrorizing Wilson Contreras and moving him to DH, maybe you should tell your pitchers to shut up. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> and a uh, quick quick follow-up on the Elvis Andrus thing. Um, so that the, the home run that Elvis Andrus hit on May 5th, 356 feet to left field, 99.1 mile per hour exit below. 39-degree launch angle, and guess what, guys? You were right. It's only a home run in 18 of 30 major league ballparks. 
Who the, why is he taking so long? He had to have been out of the box. Or no, he yeah. must have thought he flied out. He must yeah. have thought he flied out. That's probably with that, that's because of that exit angle. He probably thought he flied out, and then it's, he's passing first going, Oh, crap, that got out. <laughs> the only thing I can think of in his defense is that this did happen at Great American Ballpark, you know, a.k.a. Great American Small Park. So it is the one place where you might think something went out that, you know, everywhere else you've got to be houseling. Um, but, but I actually like your theory better, Irby. I, I think it's probably was out <laughs> because it was such a sky ball. It's so crazy. He's halfway to the dugout. They're like, Elvis, you hit that out. Oh, crap. <laughs> you have to go touch all the so 20, 20 of the 27, 28 seconds, he was walking back to the dugout, and then suddenly he sprinted around the bases. But, oh, that's awesome. Oh, well, this, you're the best. <laughs> All right. Uh, one more topic before we get into uh, armchair umpire. Uh, now, listen, I, I, I really want, I'm really hoping that, I, that I've got some front offices listening to this show uh, or, or, if they're not listening, then maybe maybe some some hospital administrators, because the way these teams are going with these concessions, either A, they cool it, or B, we're going to need some emergency rooms built next to all of these stadiums, because this is getting to be a little bit absurd. You know, we grew up with hot dogs and Cracker Jacks and nachos. Now we've got three-foot things. Like, they're three feet Long, and they're covered from end to end with not exactly good food. So, obviously, we can't go into all of them because all of the teams have them now. But I thought it'd be fun to take one from a stadium where we could, you know, the three of us could easily get to, you know. So, Samantha, I know you're not going to go to the Bronx. So how about Queens? I've got one from the Mets Stadium. I've got one from the Rangers Stadium. And I've got one from the Miami Marlins Stadium. And then a couple of nice little honorable mentions. So, let, let's start. I just want to get your reaction, a quick reaction to each one of these. Uh, Samantha, let's start with Queens. The Mets have... <laughs> this is just ridiculous. The Sunday Donuts Milkshake. It is a milkshake... Topped with sprinkles and a glazed donut that you then finish off with your choice of popcorn or Oreo crumbles. Hey, have you guys seen the picture? This thing is horrendous. It's like, first of all, I mean, my first question is how are you going to carry that? And also, how are you going to drink it? Like, all these, like, that there's a restaurant here called Black Top, which I think is helpful. The other places now, too. And that's what they specialize in. It's like these insane milkshakes that are all like 12,000 calories. And a lot of it is because there's, like, a slice of cake sitting on top of it or something, like, on top of the milkshake. And now apparently you put a donut on it. How are you going to eat this? And why do you need this? Why do you need this? Like, you could pick. You could have a donut. That would be fine. You could have a milkshake. That would be fine, too. No, you need a donut slash milkshake slash Oreo crumb slash whatever the crap else they're putting in there. Like, oh, my God. Like, we're going to have people, like, instantly becoming diabetic in the ballpark. Yeah. Like, you know in Wally how they like all can't walk, you know? Like that's what is gonna be like they need that at the exit mm-hmm. for City Field. Because then they're gonna have to roll everybody out of there after they eat this thing. Uh, also you will have no teeth. Oh I my mean, gosh. I mean you guys have, you guys have small kids or not y'all small kids. You guys have young kids. Are are you ever gonna give your kids something like this? No. 
No, I, I no. Not. Like, if, I, like, like I feel like even my my boys would start eating that, and even they, even a child, would be like, "Bro, like I can't. This like is this much. is." Oh yeah. Yeah, really. They want it because they would like how it looks, but they're not actually gonna eat it. Like yeah. I have a yeah no like I I'm not you know I'm mostly in the camp like moderation like. A, I definitely let my kids have sugar and stuff. And, like, when you go to the ballpark, you can get a treat. So, like, if we go to the ballpark and you want a donut, you can get a donut. Like, you're not getting the donut slash milkshake slash churro slash cheesecake slash we stuffed all of these things into a bucket for $50 and this one person is supposed to eat it. Like, I mean, because people are eating these, like, on their own. Like, it's not like four people are sharing this. It's not like me and my husband and all of our kids are splitting this. It's like there are people walking up and buying these one per person. Like, no, no way. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, I like that about you saying that, you know, same with my boys. Like, yeah, you can pick out one treat, one sweet. You can't yeah. have a three-game series worth of sweets in one sitting. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Like, this is a special occasion. You can have something special. You can't turn yourself into Henry VA. Um, no. <laughs> All right, uh, Irby, I think you know where I'm going to go with this. Uh, I'm sure you've seen this. You've been to about half the Rangers game so far this season. Uh, the Boomstick Burger. Uh, that's, that's new this year. Um, it is a two-foot hamburger that's served with cheese, jalapenos, chili, and onion rings on top of it. So we've got a burger, it's two feet long, and we're adding an appetizer sampler to the top of it. Yeah, this one was, so my favorite thing about when this came out is there's the boomstick already, which is the three foot long hot dog. Yeah. Um, do the math real quick, that literally was in the conversation of like, we did make it a foot shorter, if it's a hamburger, not a hot dog. Like, yes, you made it a foot shorter and you tripled the meat. No, 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 like, like, this is the one, like, I am a yes if I'm there with three friends. They were like, yeah, we can all do maybe more, because even then, as I said, there's like, that's a six-inch hamburger, and that's a lot. Like, that's just, saying it like that, there you go. Like, like you do this with four people, you're each eating a six-inch hamburger. No. <laughs> No, this is, but unfortunately, like you said, it is not me and my friends eating it. It is said individual. But yes, this is what I'm going to do all game long. Like, oh my gosh, this is. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, yeah. Also, is it really even a hamburger if it's like two feet long? Like, a hamburger's round. Like, I guess so the meat is, the meat is very cylinder-like. Um, similar to a hot dog, it's just—I mean, it's—it's it's a glorified hot dog. Like it's—it's it's basically a hot dog, a two-foot-long hot dog with beef on steroids. Like it's, I hate it. It's, yes, yes, <laughs> no, and that is a good thing. You're supposed to hate it because it's like, come on, really? Yeah. And I hate it more than uh, milkshake because it's disgusting and it's ugly. <laughs> I will say, having walked by it, the smell is nice. It's the only positive of a three. There's a nice smell. And I did enjoy, I went Monday night with a friend. We looked at it. He was his first time ever to the ballpark, and I think he immediately got sick looking at it. But we both did comment that it did smell really nice. So <laughs> Nothing like a little diabetic. It's one star. 
<laughs> Nothing like a little diabetic steam at the ballpark. Yikes. Well, I, yeah, yeah. I know. I could <laughs> probably get tested for diabetes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, I, of course, live close to Miami. So I get down to a game later this year. Watch my Twitter feed because I'll, I will share a picture of this because I'm curious. Uh, it is called the Cubano Gigante. It is a three-foot-long Cuban sandwich. And my favorite little thing about the, the little summation of it, uh, it actually says that it is the the largest Cuban sandwich in Miami. God, I hope so. Three feet long. That's just everything about it just seems normal Cuban sandwich, but it's it's three feet long and it costs you fifty dollars, Samantha. I, I this is like a, some sort of self fulfilling prophecy, right? That like if you're stupid enough to hand over fifty dollars for any one individual food item in a ballpark, then like maybe like you deserve whatever you know heart attack is coming to you. Like don't do this. Um, however, I, I will say one thing in defense of this item is that at least this is something that translates to the format, like better than the hamburger. Right, like you could make a three foot long Cuban, and I—I I mean, you shouldn't eat it. But like, you know, if you made one of these for a party and you chopped it up, and you know, you were having a party full of normal people, not people looking to die tomorrow, you could chop this up into pieces, and it would probably be fine. I mean, I personally would not eat it because I believe a Cuban has pickles on it, and that would kill me. Yeah. And I would be the one having a heart attack just for a different reason because I tasted pickle, and that—that that would absolutely kill me. But like, you could take this thing and turn it into a reasonable food. If you split it up, which we all know is not what's happening here, but like you could do it. Like at least you're not like trying to like I don't know like what you said, make a hamburger into a hot dog. So so I will give them points for at least choosing a food that can adapt to a larger format. But like, please don't buy a fifty dollar sandwich. There's just no scenario where you should be buying a fifty dollar sandwich. <laughs> like, no. Like I mean, even if you consider a lobster roll a sandwich, like that is almost never fifty dollars. Like, yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Uh, I do love the, uh, I, I love the three feet thing and that they call it the biggest one. Cause you know, they probably like initially were, we're doing this thing two feet long. No, 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 no. Such and such down on base. Yes. Has yes. a two and a half footer. So we got to go three feet. All right. Got to go three feet. <laughs> Absolutely. How, how do you, and, that, and that's why it's, $50 and not $40. Uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious. How do you get a three foot long sandwich to your seat? Well, and what do you do with it once you get there if you're not with three people? Like, what if there's only two of you? Because you know how mad I would be if somebody was, like, swinging their giant sandwich over into my I guess they... if it was a Cuban. Like, I would complain about that. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. If I'm the one next to him? Yeah. I would not be happy about that. Like, ew. Gross. <laughs> like, Especially when you have to sit there and watch them eat it, too. Like, that, well, that's you're really the good. other thing. And I have to smell it. Like, you know that, like, uh, if, you, if you're like me and you don't know, like pickles, and it's, it's, oh my gosh. Plus, and I have to know that that person, and I say this is like, I understand that I'm like the queen of like spending money on stupid crap, but like, there are limits, right? Like, there's just a point where this just doesn't make sense, where it becomes a nuisance to you and everyone around you, and like, well, what is the end game there? Is the goal to eat the whole thing? Like, that, that feels like a, not something that would be a great achievement in terms of what it would actually result in. Like, <laughs> I don't know, guys. Like, if they just stop making everything enormous, how about that? Maybe it doesn't need to be enormous. You just sell a really good Cuban sandwich. I would still die if someone next to me ate it. But, you know, most people would probably feel okay about it. 
All right, so real quick before we get to Armstrong Empire, um, two honorable mentions. Uh, one from your Cleveland Guardians, Samantha. I thought they should be represented. Um, represented, not represented. Um, <laughs> they available. It's very British of you. Orientated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if I find myself in Cleveland, I will be in queue for this particular see what I did there okay uh available at <laughs> throw and smoke barbecue down the third baseline concourse mac and cheese brisket now this is not ridiculous it's not overly sized at least not that I know of it's probably not going to cost you $50 but it's two of my favorite foods put together so of course I'm going to do that See, I'm okay with this. And I don't like mac and cheese or brisket, but I'm all right with this. This is a normal-sized food. Like, I, I've seen this thing. It's, I mean, it's big, but it's no bigger than, you know, if you go to a barbecue restaurant or the same thing, right? Like, this is, yeah, and it's, like, normal food. Like, you didn't combine things that don't go together or change the format of it or make it enormous or whatever. Like, I, I personally wouldn't order this, but, but I'm okay with the existence See, but I, I would also get the the brisket croissant thing at at Rangers Ballpark. I'm I'm just a sucker for brisket. See, but I was okay with that too, though. I oh, mean, okay. that looked like again, I wouldn't order it, but like it, like that just looked like a like this is what we should do be doing with ballpark food, right? Like that, yeah. like it, it's not like it's not going to kill you to eat that thing. Yeah, you know, like I, I feel okay about that being served when they turn it into the boom brisket. And it's three for the booming sons. <laughs> oh, it's probably it's, coming. It's, yeah, it'll be probably coming. I'm getting off this shit, but you know, <laughs> All right, so one more uh, before we go here, because um, frankly, I think we all need a palate cleanser and whatnot. Um, the Tigers have something interesting. <clears throat> they they have figured out a way to introduce a salad to a ball game. It's called the Garden Salad Jar. Uh, it is, of course, a jar filled with spring mix, salads, cheese, grains, veggies, and occasionally chicken in a manageable screw-top jar. You just shake it up and go. Okay, I have some thoughts about this. First of all, that's not a salad. A, a jar of iceberg lettuce and cheese, probably with ranch <laughs> dressing on top of it, is not a salad. Fair. So, again, like this is why we have to roll people out of the ballpark, because they're going to pretend they're being healthy and they're going to eat that, and it's going to be... You know, 800 calories, and no one's going to know what went wrong. They got um, a Diet Coke with it. Not a sense. <laughs> <Exactly laughs> of course they piece. did. Exactly. <laughs> so that'll happen. The other thing with this, because there was an attempt at jar salad at some of the, like, higher-end grocery stores um, around where I live, and let me tell you, you don't, you're not going to like what happens to lettuce when it's in a jar for more than, like, 30 minutes. <laughs> it's deeply unpleasant like texturally so good luck with that tigers good luck i'm also worried that now that we've opened up this well i was gonna say can but this jar basically now that we've opened up this jar <laughs> what what comes next of like hmm we can put beef yeah. and queso and jalapenos in a jar and shake it up <laughs> frito oh, yeah, in a not, jar yeah nacho and then here's your jar. straw <laughs> mm -hmm. nacho jar like, oh, gross. I, <laughs> I like, so few full meals that belong in a jar. Like the, the only way you eat a meal out of a jar is if you're like in a hurry and you're like, I'm going to eat three bites of peanut butter. 
Like, that's a meal out of a jar. Like, I just, or like perhaps a soup. What, why was this not a soup? <laughs> Maybe it comes with a soup. Get a soup and a salad. It probably does. <laughs> and unlimited breadsticks. Like, it's Olive Garden, which is also not a place I recommend eating. Um, <laughs> anyway, this is why I have trouble finding something to eat at ballparks. Uh, in case anyone was wondering, I pretty much don't eat there anymore. Um, you just got to eat the single hot dog, right? The smash that's hot dog. That's yep, it. That's, that's it. it. Get the hot dog and go. That's okay. right. <laughs> hot dog, beer, coffee. If you're lucky enough to be in a park that actually serves coffee, like that's this is appropriate ballpark. So oh my gosh. <laughs> Sell it in a jar. I can't. No. no. Sell it in a jar. Terrible. <laughs> I'm like, mm, With a donut. All right, Irby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, it's time for armchair umpire. Uh, you know, our hitting streak was ended last week, Samantha. So we're gonna we're gonna have to buckle down and uh, make, yeah, make sure we don't hit a slump here. Yeah, I don't want to go full Blue Jays. Exactly. Like, <laughs> I don't get sweat. <laughs> All right. Yeah. 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 No, I got. I, I believe in you guys. I got confidence in you guys. Okay. Yeah. I got so um, we'll keep it. We'll keep it. You know, no salad in a jar type thing. We'll keep it kind of. Kind of fun here. So um, the series that I have in mind, you know, this, as the story starts off here, you know, the double play um, takeout rules, what we're going to be focusing in that world today, and it poses always some interesting problems. So let's take the situation here. Um, let's say, you know, it's kind of what's going on here, that the Nationals are playing down there in Miami while they're eating away at their Cubano sandwiches. <laughs> um, Miami's up in a 3-3 tie. Uh, in the in the fourth inning, and John Birdie, quick quick runner, gets on uh, with a leadoff walk, and then on a single from Garrett Cooper, uh, Birdie's able to take it all the way to third. So now we've got runners at the corners, and nobody out, and Mr. Arise comes to the plate. And uh, next up, so Arise hits a uh, a nice little chopping ground ball to Washington shortstop C.J. Abrams, who comes up with the ball and flips it to second baseman Luis Garcia for the force out. At this moment, Mr. Cooper, coming in to second base, deliberately charges in to Mr. Garcia to break up the double play. But Mr. Cooper not being the quickest, the ball being choppy, um, and, and not really worried about the runner at third and a quick runner at third, as this is all occurring at second base, Mr. Birdie, who was at third, John Birdie, Touches home plate at the same time that the entanglement is happening at second base. As the base runner clearly went out of his way, Garrett Cooper clearly out of his way to cause this collision with uh, Luis Garcia, the base umpire, rules interference and calls both the runner, Garrett Cooper, and the batter, Mr. Luis Arise, out. But what about John Birdie? You're the plate umpire. What are you doing? Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Hmm. All right, Samantha. Okay, so no matter what, the inning is not over. 
because the guy at third is not going to be out no right. matter what the decision is here. We're just deciding whether the run scores. So there are now two outs, and the question is, did the run score or not? Right. So, right. So yes, interference, okay, it was a force out at second, interference. But the interference basically after he crossed home plate. Right. And also, you can't assume you had a play at the plate. Correct. So, to me, that runner is safe. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I guess the only question is, does it become a dead ball when interference is called? But we don't actually know when interference was called. So, I'm assuming that is not the case because we don't really have any way of knowing that. Yeah, unless that dead ball applies to all runners, whether the, whether or not he scored, whether or not he touches home. If, right. Right, but only if the interference was signaled before he crossed the plate, right? Which we don't know. We'd, and there's no way for the well, there's no way for the umpires to know, right? So they could they could say, well, you know, you didn't cross before. But for for in this case, we know the runner beat the interference call. So in our little world, the umpires are going to rule that well, the guy scored. Two outs here, empty bases, run scored. Yeah, I agree. Because as long as he crosses the plate before the interference is mentioned, then what happens with that is not relevant here. And you can't assume that the second baseman would have thrown home because there's no, you can't assume a double play. Right. Ever. So you can call, although, oh, that's an interesting question. Like, is the runner at first really out? Because you can't assume double play. Oh, you're right. So the interference, but see, I mean, he has to be right because the guy at second was out no matter what. The guy at second's out for runner's interference. Well, but isn't right. he also, Irby, is the guy at second also out because he did not beat the throw? Yes, the throw got to second before the runner, the force out, did occur at second before any entanglement. Okay, so um, I love I love of, this book so much because that is the literal word it used. Entanglement, I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay, so that guy was out no matter what. So we have to assume that it's correct that the runner at first is also out regardless of the assumption of double play because otherwise there would be no reason to call interference unless that interference call is an indication that the ball is dead and the run doesn't count and the runner goes back to the third. I, I mean, think I these are all like, really good points. We're just, yeah, <laughs> like, we're just we're just guessing now. Like, I don't know about like I still think he's safe at home, but like I could see it being you know the entire point of calling interference was to ensure that that run does not cross the plate. I can see that being true. I don't know where you at. Uh, what are your thoughts here? I mean, I are we going with our original answer? Or are we backing it up? <laughs> No, I think we stick with the original answer. Maybe maybe we're about to learn something new. Yeah, no, I I agree. I'm leaning that way as well. So let's let's just roll with it. Yeah, we'll see. Right. Maybe we were right the first time. All right, Let's Runner is safe. Two outs. Runner. Okay, so so y'all are going with runner is out at second. Batter is out, as we said, and the runner at home scores. Yes. Yes. Okay. 
And this is just to clarify, what was the other one that y'all were tipping on? Like you, you're filling the other option? Um, well, what we were trying to decide was if if you can't ever assume double play, and we already knew the runner was out at second, and the only reason to call for interference would be for the ball to be dead, which would put the runners at first and third and no runs scored. And that okay. the runner at second is out. That's the okay. other we're considering. All right. Guessing is the right answer this what you're saying. <laughs> no, 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 no. No. Um, I, it, this is... It's, this is good. Uh, the, the, the rule book is going to rule this as a hit. You guys got a hit. You are correct. Uh, runners out at second. Batters okay. out. Run scores. As umpires, you are 100% correct in your interpretation of how you, too, talked this through and made your decision. Now, here's the fun thing. As umpires, in your judgment, if the interference, in your opinion, the runner out of the line, the runner, Garrett Cooper, going from first to second, if he was out of the line and beginning the interference before the run scored, in your interpretation and your opinion, you can put John Birdie back at third. Ooh. Both oh, answers I... would have been correct. Okay, so we could have given you that answer as long as we told you that's why we were doing it. That's exactly. Okay, two right answers. That's cool. And, and thank goodness. Okay, we can go. Let's just let's pat ourselves in the back. Yeah, yeah. We, get, we got it. Yeah. We got it. I love that there are two answers. I think that's wonderful as long as one of them is the one we gave you. <laughs> I know. How bad would you be? It's like, so there's two answers. You didn't get either of them. <laughs> yeah. Like, that would have been bad. <laughs> you were not even close to either one of them. Like, uh, okay. That would have been bad. I Now I feel like I am. This is the open days. I want to quit. This is I I enjoyed this one because this is one that definitely um, you're potentially going to have a manager thrown out of this either way. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you're going to if you count the run, then you're going wait. The interference, he should be going back. And then if the other way, if you do not like what you guys said, but if you do the opposite of what y'all said, and you're like, no, he was already. He had already begun the interference. We have to put that runner back. That that manager's yelling. But he already scored before this occurred. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yes, that was a that was, I, I like that one just because it is. There's two answers. It really comes down to the umpire's um, judgment. I mean, that, that, that really, it's not even an interpretation of a rule. The rule is pretty hard and fast about the other two: the runner and the batter the runner at second that causes the interference, and the batter. But there is nothing in the rule about what you do with the other, except had he not touched home when interference is called. So it comes down to the judgment of the umpires of when are they judging that interference began. Because you can interfere without making contact, running completely out of a baseline and something like that. So that is the judgment call of we judge that and it's great because it's not reviewable either. So it is purely on the four umpires that are making a judgment call of interference began at this moment, the runner did or did not touch, and that would determine does the run score. Oh, that's a good one, Irby. That, that's awesome. I, I love that. That's super interesting because I, I love that there are two answers to this, which in neither scenario the manager on the wrong end of it would be satisfied with. Nope, nope. They, if this was Blue Jays and Yankees, there would be a lot of fat boy yelling. I can't 
can you imagine? And that fat boy would have been directed at the off, but oh my gosh, somebody's getting kicked out. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Hey, I love it. We learned something and we got it right. Can't be better than that. <laughs> Armchair umpire, you know, the, the choose your own adventure edition. I like it. Yes. Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. We're out of here. Don't forget to smash that like button. Give us that subscription. Help us out with that algorithm. Until next week, watch some baseball without a three-foot sandwich, will you?